Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Greenbelt's Somewhere to Believe in podcast. In this series, a nun, a rabbi, a Muslim convert, a Lutheran firebrand, a humanist, an American liberation theologian, a retired Met police officer and an LGBTQ priest all walk into a bar. You know they always say don't talk about religion or politics. Well, funny that because that's what we like to talk about most at Greenbelt. Perhaps that makes us impolite. Find out and join us in this series of no-holds-barred conversations with extraordinary people who are prepared to wear their hearts on their rolled-up sleeves for whom faith isn't personal, who get stuck in because of what they believe. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good. Sun's out. Summer's yeah. here. It feels like summer has arrived all of a sudden, doesn't it? What a difference it makes. You went away in your van? Do you have some good weather? Oh, beautiful weather. And also everything is so green because we've had so much rain. Everything looks beautiful and is luscious. But yeah, had some beautiful weather, spent some time outdoors in my van. Yeah, I saw some of the shots on Instagram, Catherine. It was looking pretty lifestyley and and idyllic. (laughs) (laughs) And it's made, you know what it's made me really long for now i can almost taste the beer in the plastic glasses and smell the grass and the mud and the chemical toilets i'm just dying to be a <laughs> festival <laughs> oh have you got any tickets for any festivals are you hoping for any festivals to actually get through and go ahead this year i really hope that some do because i think that some really need to i haven't bought any tickets i'm going to go to a few camping events that people that that festivals are having and try and make the most out of it but no i haven't i might still if things are looking still good you know past june and there's still some festivals going on i'd love to buy some tickets and support them and keep them going because i think everybody's gonna have a tough go of it this year Uh, there's just a few things need to come into place to give those festivals who are holding out the confidence to go ahead i really like you i really hope that some festivals can go ahead i think it would be just so deeply damaging for the festivals for audiences for you know the country really if we don't have any summer festivals this year yep for musicians for traders for suppliers for freelancers for everybody i mean we've seen it a bit this year just having one year of lost summer like how it's changed with all of our suppliers you know some have gone under some have moved on to different things it's it's a tough there's such an economy that goes around festivals the artists the contractors you know such a dependency on that summer work um for so so many people We've got a fascinating guest lined up on this week's podcast. And um, I think, you know, we were just chatting that that you're very, very fond of Sister Teresa Focardis, aren't you, Catherine? Really fond. I know that I've, I think I've said this quite a few times, but I think that she's my favourite podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to you just before that, like, I've listened to this talk now many times because I love it and every time I listen to it it just makes me want to go and knock on her door at the monastery and just follow her around for the rest of my life I just think she's amazing we booked her for Greenbelt three or four years ago and on the ticket that she was being described as Europe's most radical nun which I just love you know if if there is a (laughs) Europe's most radical nun they need to be at Greenbelt and luckily she was on a period of leave from the monastery and she came to Greenbelt 
And I remember sitting in the back of one of her talks. No, she was being interviewed. Um, and I heard her talk about Mary and a theology of Mary, something as a Protestant I've always been really sceptical about. But I tell you what, by the time she finished, I was ready. I was. I would venerate Mary. I, I'd have a statue of her on my wall. I, I could see the sense she makes. She makes you sort of see the sense of things in a way that you've quite unexpected. You just there's something that naturally draws you into somebody like that. I mean, she's so authentic. She's so truthful. And there's something that just really attracts you to people like that. Because you were you were brought up like in going to Catholic school, weren't you? And taught by nuns and that sort of thing, Catherine. I was. My, I, I got my confirmation name after a nun that taught me because she was cool too. So maybe I've always loved nuns a little bit. But, you know, I, I think I've said on this podcast, I, I, I don't look at my Catholic school upbringing with, you know, rose-tinted glasses, really. I've got a lot of criticism um, about it. But she she shared a lot of those criticisms. She's still a nun within the Catholic Church. I just love that. Just to say that when Catherine and I invite these guests onto the podcast, you know, neither of us are professional chat show interviewers or chat show hosts. And so we tend to do a lot of listening because we find our guests really fascinating. Listeners, if you find some of the answers a little bit long, it's because we think that they need room to breathe. They need the arguments need room to be developed and, and they're just fascinating. So we hope that you enjoy listening to Sister Teresa as much as we did. It's brilliant. That's all we needed to say. <laughs> um, so, hello, Sister Teresa. Thank you for joining us. Uh, where are you speaking to us from today? Hello to all of you and to those who might be listening to us. I'm speaking today from my monastery which is located at the mountain of Montserrat, that's near Barcelona, 30 kilometers or 60 kilometers from Barcelona, that is in Catalonia, in Spain, today. And how many people live in that monastery? How many women? Because we are all women here. Uh, we are uh, 30 women, living 30 sisters in this monastery. When I entered the monastery, that was back in 1997, we were 40 then. And I encounter some of the sisters. Well, we all have a number because it's practical. Not that we go by number, we go by name. But I mean, a number is a sign because when we have, for example, a table of chores, you just put the number or in the clothing because we wash our clothing all together. So that uh, some sisters had number 83, which means they at some point, and that is after the Spanish Civil War, they uh, were 83 sisters living here. Wow. Since I entered, 25 have died. At least 25, I don't, I have not counted. Uh, but at least 25, and that means that also some have entered new ones, or actually more than 30 have died. Do you still get young people wanting to um, become nuns and join your monastery? Not so young, in the sense that uh, we did have uh, somebody like 21, right, that wanted to join couple of years ago, but we ourselves, or the abbas and the teacher of novices who talk to them, advises them not to do it at such nowadays young age. Before, 21 would have been old age to join monastery, <laughs> even people at 16, 18, 19. But at that time, 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago, 
at age 18, you were done with your preparation for life um, period, right? And you were ready to marry and to be an adult in full sense. But nowadays at 18, you are still a kid, right? You are still starting, you making a decision what you want to learn to be when you are grown up. So that's certainly a huge difference in how people and women especially too prepare for life because maybe in the past men also thought they were not mature until 30, right? That they had demonstrated they could, could earn a living and they needed to have gathered some experience. But for women, it was you're ready to bear children, you're mature, right? So age 14, good enough or even less. That uh, for good, I think it has changed. Although now some people wait until they are 40 and then it's like, oh, too late to have children maybe, or that's also an interesting topic. But to make it short, at the monastery, yes, some people knock at the door that are 18 or 21, not many, but some. But we ourselves advise that they just do some study if they are up to the university or gather some more experience or even what the abbess before the one we have now used to say, well, why don't you get a boyfriend or you could say a girlfriend too, so that you also have experience in the realm of what is it that is called sexuality, what it means for you personally, right? And then the decision to be a nun or better said, because it's not exactly a decision that you make uh, on your own, but uh, in my case and in the case of all the sisters that I know, you feel a calling, right? So it's more your response to a calling. It's not like, okay, I'm going to make a decision, everything coming or me experiencing everything emerging from myself. It's different. It's like somebody, but this somebody's God, right? So how each one figures that out, that is, of course, highly personal. and But that would be the common ground, right? It's you feel called, and that's why the classical name for it is vocation, from the Latin vocare, which means exactly voice comes from that, right? So you hear a voice, but it doesn't mean you have an auditive hallucination. You just <laughs> hear an inner voice, or what you interpret as an inner voice. And just what you were saying before about, um, you know, if a young woman of 18, 19 turned up at your door, you would kind of tell them to go away and get some life experience and maybe get some experience, you know, get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I, I didn't expect you to say that. I love that because it is, it is true. I think that my own experience is I only became what I feel like as a woman past the age of 30. You know, before then I was kind of learning and making mistakes. Um but I never, I never kind of thought that that's what the Roman Catholic Church would do with someone wanting to come into, you know, take a life of service. I'm not uh, uh, implying that every monastery would do that. So I'm, let's keep it open. But that's what <laughs> we did. And actually, with this particular woman, she went on and then married uh, a man who wanted to be a monk. And they have six children now. So they, sometimes she comes and says, maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> she becomes a student. Right? They are both musicians. But she has six children and has a seventh one, which she has adopted, right? They have adopted. And she was telling me also how, enraging it was for her when she went for her fifth or, or sixth pregnancy to the hospital and they were uh how do we say in english one second they were commiserating her at the hospital right saying oh what do your husband does to you and she was like what completely enraged because they don't have six children because the husband does not have pity on the wife or anything like that right but it's it's interesting how this seemingly progressive or open-minded uh 
perspectives can come on on a woman who is you would see her she's such a beautiful and, and fulfilled woman and she works and does everything but she has six children so nowadays it's not very common huh? Mm. But yes, she comes sometimes and says, "Am I sure? I mean, did I do right?" But it's beautiful how they pray with the children and how they. It's very. I, I'm amazed whenever they explain. And these children are yes, a blessing. Huh? I, I've been reading a lot about you, and one of the things I find really fascinating is how openly your you talk about feminism, and especially in relation to the Roman Catholic Church, which you've been quite critical of in the past being um quite misogynistic or patriarchal um is that i know that you were talk you've been talking about that for a few years do you think there has been any um development with that do you think things are changing some development yes indeed right in recent times we just have heard about some appointments that for the first time Women are appointed to certain offices that have true power within the Vatican structure. That's true. And that was not the case before. Just recently, I think the last one is actually another Catalan nun appointed in the Vatican. And I'm, that's Nuria Calduc, uh, whom I get to know personally. And she's a Bible scholar, a very well-known one from Old Testament wisdom literature. And she has been professor at the Gregorian University for many years, but now she has been appointed, and I don't know all this, but I think it's Secretary General of the Biblical Commission, but that's a very high post and a very of great responsibility. There is still a man above. Don't get me wrong, right? There is a cardinal that's the true responsible one. But as you might know from your own experience with committees, well, on paper, the true responsible one is the cardinal. In reality, it's the secretary. That is usually the case, right? So it, it is not to be overlooked that this position is one for sure of trust and an important one. Then there is this debate nowadays in the Catholic Church about the women deacons, right? That uh, the Pope opened a commission. This commission for the first time was paritary or egalitarian, had six women and six men, and then the cardinal. So it was seven to six. But still, it was new, right? We, so all this needs to be taken into account or acknowledged. Um, the structure, though, or one basic point in which I don't see progress and I don't think it will, well, the Holy Spirit does things that are surprising, right? So I shouldn't play the prophet. I don't know what will happen. But I don't see um, an, a true uh, uh, development, and I consider it very important, is this issue of ordination, Right? The issue of ordination, I don't see moving, although some people think, well, the deacon, that is like a first step. Maybe so, maybe not. Maybe it's a way to divert this energy towards a, a dead end. So I don't know. But uh, the basic tenet that you cannot in the Catholic Church fully represent Christ in front of the community liturgically, liturgically, because nobody would say, of course, an abbess represents Christ in the monastery. And that's written in the in the rule of Benedict, and it's a document from the 6th century. And of course, a woman who is like a loving woman, and it's playing, uh, right, acting as a true Christian, represents Christ. It's uh, that the theology is very clear here. And of course, the Catholic theology doesn't dare to mingle with that, right? So we are speaking very concretely, officially, liturgically, within the structure of that institution we call the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, it's restricted, but even though 
it restricted, it's important, it's very important. So it makes no sense for me that as a young girl, you have to be schooled or you learn, right, to separate men and women along those lines. That necessarily is going to affect your vision or your image of God. And it's going to tilt it in some way that, right, not uh, not precisely a good one for women. It makes no sense. It, it How, what kind of thinking and and going back and forth and what kind of complicated something needs a brain of a girl needs to do, right? To, to come to terms with the discovery maybe of your own faith from an, uh, a young age and what it means. It brings joy, it brings self-affirmation uh, and it brings joy and it brings a sense of I'm uh, um, a loved person and I'm, of course, a worthy person. Like, uh, And then it comes this and it ca- causes some short circuit that I think it's criminal to cause in girls' brains, right? And in everybody everybody else, also a boy, right? Suddenly the boy has to look at the girl or nowadays always we have to be careful with the uh, also um, identities of sexual identity that uh, are crossing these uh, typical boys and girls, but whoever, right? Wherever you identify yourself along that line, something gets mingled with your experience of faith that has a gender bias and it's not a positive one. So that I think it's, it's, I use the word criminal because I want to use the strongest possible, right? So this is what I mean when I say that the Catholic Church is misogynist or sexist structurally. If you ask me if I'm seeing changes in that direction now, my answer is no. In that direction, I'm not seeing. And also not even within communities, right? We are in my own community, which I love, and it's my community, and we are, right, I think, uh, an open-minded community. But two years, because of the pandemics, right, we didn't have any priests last year for the Easter to celebrate. So the abbess was doing that, and we were all thrilled and enjoying and everything. But then we said, oh, why don't we just preach the word, right, once a week, and we don't wait for the for the priest to talk. And, well... Some sisters wanted that, some did not. Because, I don't know, they feel, okay, we don't see men that often, so at least they'll let them come and talk. I don't know what the deep reason there can be. But but it's true. So uh, also my idea within the church and within the society is that what we call patriarchy, it's not what men do to women, right? It's what we both, men and women, do to ourselves when we... That's my own thinking, and I don't want to develop that now. But when we, I think, go by something I call the childish um, uh, period of sexual identity, which is my understanding, is binary because it has the mother as the reference point, right? And you are either like her, so a little mother in the making, or different. And that is a simplification, right? But Okay, this would be long to, to explain, but I believe this is true for little children because they do have, and they have the mother as the mm, the psychoanalyst would say, the main erotic object, right? The object of desire, but this is true. But in the adulthood, I think we are called to be what the Gospel of John in chapter 3 speaks about, and this is to be born again, Right? And to be born again is the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus, a sage, right, a wise person uh, of his time, did not visit Jesus during the daylight because Jesus was a marginal figure, right? And so he was ashamed to be seen with this marginal 
um, non-orthodox prophet? What is he talking about? How he behaves? What he says? So it's very interesting. The gospel says at night. Well, people at night are sleeping. At that time, they had no lights, right? So that they talked at night. That means there was something there. So it says Nicodemus at night goes to talk to Jesus. They have a very deep conversation. At some point, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again, right? And Nicodemus takes that literally and says, how can a grown-up man go back to the uterus within the woman, right, to be born again? And Jesus' answer is, no, not from the woman, right? And that's nothing to put down the woman, but it's just to separate. This is one thing. Now we're talking about something else. Not to be born to be a child again, to be born to be a child of God, to be a Christified person. And this is to be born, says Jesus, from water and spirit. That's how we understand the baptism, right? But then adds, well, the spirit, because in uh, Greek also pneuma means air and ruach and all this. So the spirit winds or the wind blows where it wills. We see the effects. We hear the roaming, but we don't see whence it comes or uh, from where it comes and where it goes. That is for me the definition of a mature identity. It's an open one completely open one. It does not follow, that's why sometimes I call queer theology to what I do, because I believe that's how God looks at each of us. It looks at each of us and it sees a unique something. It doesn't see, okay, here, Paul, a man, and Catherine, a woman. Uh, it does not classify people, not like English, and here the Catalan, and then here the intelligent, the less, the, all these labels that maybe we need because we are in time and space, but we should always take them as relative, as uh, um, not final, as insufficient, and maybe we don't even need many of them, right? So this capacity that I understand is how God looks at me and sees something original, right? And calls me to my originality. This is this is really fascinating, Sister Teresa. And we remember in the field, um, the tents were full of people wrapped with attention. And uh, you can do a Bible study like not many people can do. So thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for that. Um, so many reference points remind us of so many facets of your life you know we can hear we can hear the physician talking when you use language like uterus and (laughs) when you use catalan rather than spanish we can hear Mm. the fiercely independent political woman talking as well and Mm. we'd love to get into that a little bit with you if we could firstly given the fact we've just been living through this pandemic for the last year or so um, and your commitment to and vision for pub- a, a real notion of public health, public well-being. And I know that you've done a lot of study around the origins and the history of the World Health Organization, etc. Do you have any reflections from your from the monastery about about what the pandemic has meant for us? What 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 has it meant for us as a global community? For perhaps as for you as Catalonians and. Uh, you know, we're just interested to hear your take as someone who's both uh, a believer, uh, a devotee, but also has that medical uh, background as well. I do have something to say as physician, because there are some things how this pandemic has been dealt with and still uh, what's going on that are hard for me to figure it out as physician or as a specialist in public health. Uh, I spoke publicly back in 2009, right, about the uh, so-called swine flu. Yes. And there I said, well, there is not 
a match between how the authorities talk about what's going on and what really is going on. And then it was an isolated voice first, then other voices joined. But that was very astonishing for me. It's like, how could that be that the WHO is talking without a scientific base, but they are the highest authority? How could that be that the different governments are following lead without they have so many specialists. I mean, who was I and who am I yet now? An isolated person that just does some investigation and then it seems that that's corroborated. But I've published about that, so I don't want to go in length. But so that you know that I was with that background, now we started this new situation. And what I can tell you that has not been out in the press, and if it's to be taken seriously, and I don't have a reason to believe it should not, and it's the following. In... October it was, I think, 22 scientists. Among them, I don't recall if any English, but I think a couple of English, most mostly German scientists, one from Tokyo, one in the USA, but well-known scientists and people who are not marginal figures or physicians in a monastery like I can be, but they are working in big institutions and hospitals, 22 of them, signed a letter and published it, which says that article that in January 2020, Christopher Drosten, I think it's the name, who is the head of the virology department in the Charité, the big uh, hospital in Berlin, right? He had published the first paper about the PCR, about applying. PCR is a a well-known technique in my training. I had used many times, but applying the PCR to the COVID, right? The SARS-CoV-2. These 22 scientists said there are 10 major flaws in that article. Well, that happens in science, then it's unheard of. But okay, if that's the case, it's the case. But one, if that's the case, because that's being published and it's been not not rebutted, then why haven't we heard about it in general, right? I know because I have access to those articles. But the second is, if that's the case, then all the PCRs in which we base the numbers of how many people are infected or not, and in which we base public decisions, that is something that we need to reassess in a radical way. But it's only one of more than, there are more details like this that make me unease, right? I cannot just say, okay, yes, all that's happening, and then I make a spiritual comment, which I, I might make if you want, right? But I need to make this comment first to say, as far as I know, and then there is something else. It's this substance called uh, chlorine dioxide, which is, a substance that cannot be patented, and it's a substance that's very cheap to to achieve, and it's a substance I also know from 2009, and it's been acknowledged already that it has this virucidal, right? It can kill the virus, uh, and it's being used to kill the virus, the corona, the Ebola, the Zika, all these viruses outside the body. This substance can be also taken orally. It's this substance that needs to be studied, and it's not being studied. So I myself produce a protocol because I don't want only to say what others have to say with other doctors, right? And we have this protocol since May 2020 in the official body in Spain, and they are answering like, okay, uh, tell us more about the biology chapter three. Now talk about this. I mean, they are making us waste the time since May last year, and they are just not doing the study or not allowing us to do it. We only need the erlaubnis, I mean, the the permission, right, from the main body. This is the same substance that now you can research that is official in Bolivia. 
the Bolivian parliament approved this substance and they are using it to the millions and the university is producing it and they reduce the mortality from 3% to 0.3%. What is that in the news? I don't understand. My personal experience is I'm taking this substance and I have given to uh, people very close to me, some of them doctors that had the coronavirus and it it just, it, it works. This is only anecdote, right? In medicine, we don't go by particular cases, but that's, I'm not claiming that we should just uh, take for granted this works. I'm just saying, listen, at this dose, this is not toxic. This I can prove scientifically because other people have done the studies. Why are we doing the study? I cannot believe this. And there are 3,000 physicians in a, a worldwide uh, association talking about this, and this is not coming to the white public. This is not... so. Put together this PCR and this, and it seems I'm causing right trouble. That being said, and that's part, of course, of how I'm living through this with this bewilderment that it's, I cannot say it's naive. It was naive in my case in 2009, right? That was for the first time because of what happened around it and how governments and other people and how these pharmaceutical companies are allowed even today, right, to make money out of a uh, the maximal health alert worldwide. And yet, some of the people don't get the vaccine because some of the companies are holding some rights that we are granting them. Makes no sense. It's it's the world upside down. The vaccine, which I also see has limits, and but that's also not our topic. But let's forget about my um, uh, questions about it and say, let's say it's the best we have, right? So then all labs in the world should be producing it, with no exception, quickly. Now, all resources. Are you nuts? People are losing their everything, their business, what they worked for 20 years, and now they are ruined. So many people. And we don't want to touch these multi-million companies that just have money overflowing and they don't know what to do with it. It's a joke, right? It's very bad. That's part of this world, which I can be very critical of the Catholic Church, but believe me, the world as a whole, I don't see in a better light. Something fundamentally flawed in how we are allowing our living together to go about, right? And um, this is what comes to the fore when circumstances like this one force us all to think twice about it. And my consolation then, and that... It's when I see the gospel, right? Because the gospel, the poor Jesus, I mean, more reason than Jesus I'll never have, right? More right than Jesus I will never be. And what happened to Jesus? Huh? I'm always reminded of one painting I saw. I think it was von Bruegel or one of the Flemish painters and in one museum that I also don't recall which one it was, but I recall the painting because the painting was crucifixion, but not center stage crucifixion. It was like landscape, and there in a corner, little Golgotha, little mountain, hill, then the cross and some few people around. And for, in, for, in, the, in the frontal aspect of the painting, some people just selling and buying things, others doing a tournament, like a medieval tournament, and life goes on. And there in a corner, Jesus is being crucified and nobody cares which I thought it was brilliant. It was exactly how I feel it, it happened when it did, but how it happens again and again, right? That the world has another center of interest, another focus, and things that really matter are happening on the corner. Is there any ever pressure on you to be silenced by saying this kind of stuff? Is there is there anybody that's come to you and said, oh, can you be quiet a little bit about this because it's not quite 
what we want to be talking about or up to recently um, which means up to three years ago i uh, was very proud to say that in my community and in my church i had never been told to be silent that others had done it and mostly the pharmaceutical companies had even very clearly gone to responsible people for medical congresses and told them if you invite dr furcadas we just take the money back from this congress that i was told by the chief of the epidemiologists in spain they invited me 2010 to their uh, national gathering to speak on the um, swine flu and he told me well we have invited you this year we cannot invite you anymore because our Congress depends on financing and the financing they, we have been warned. The nurses also invited the Catalan nurses, not the Spanish nurses, invited me to a Congress uh, on uh, some ethical issues and they received so much pressure. At the beginning they said, we are receiving pressure, but we want to, we will stand firm, right? And then they wrote and said, we cannot anymore. I don't know what the pressure was, but from the even, so that I knew, right? I, it's true. But I had never been uh, asked to be or, or attempted to be silenced um, from the community or from the church. And now it is the case. So I cannot say that anymore. I don't want to paint to you uh, something black colors, right? It's not a bad experience. It's not an easy one that I'm open about because it's true. It's not being an easy experience. But uh, I think I'm in the last years and be, maybe because of that, also being called to deepen what I call my spirituality, right? And this is uh, a source of another type of peace and joy, right? Which I'm uh, very much... Uh, um, I, now the German comes because I did something, Schätzen, huh? that cherish, cherish. Yeah, cherish. Right, right. It's, it's, it's true. And for that, it's worth it to, to just... Uh, give everything else, right? Just to to have that sense of being alive. I don't know. It's like that. We, we've read and we've heard you say that, you know, when you first uh, encountered the Gospels as a teenager, as I think it was a 15-year-old, mm-hmm. um, you're almost cross because you thought, you know, why haven't, why haven't I seen this before? And it's, it feels like you've always read those Gospels or, or very much from a very early age um, as in a political sense as well as in a spiritual sense. And you you've written that socialism for you goes hand in hand with your reading of those gospels whereas for some people they're always looking for um you know socialism certainly in this country is viewed with suspicion um uh, and the church and the gospels are viewed with skepticism and suspicion but yeah we we we're very inspired i think by your bringing together of the two and i th- you flip the question you say well how how can you separate out <laughs> socialism from from the gospel i wonder can you tell us anything about your politics and mm-hmm. how as a as a christian person you see politics and how how are we to be involved in the political so the, the first would be to say that politics, if we take it like Aristotle did, right, in this classical philosophical notion, well, politics is about ab- above virtue for Aristotle, because virtue is about uh, living good yourself, right? But politics is about living good life together. So that's, that's above virtue. To be a virtuous or to strive to be a virtuous person, that's not a bad thing. But this is only about yourself. To strive to be uh, um, involved in politics, that 
means in this philosophical and uh, the deep possible way to be ready to be involved and to work and to give your life for all of us to have a better life or to try to have it and to move towards more justice and all this, right? So this is my frame to talk to politics. That's what it is. But me having been active a little bit also in what they call frontline politics a few years ago, now I really find it difficult to bring that together with the party politics that I have experienced, at least in my land. And and I'm reading now because I'm teaching about this woman, Simone Weil, right, that I have written about her. And she openly said, let's get rid of the political parties. I don't know. So she was thinking that how can a democracy be based and articulated or hinge upon or to, to right, uh, put the weight on groups that, by definition, are supposed to be looking after their own interest. The particular political parties that we have in Spain, for example, and sadly also in Catalonia, this is they have something called party discipline. I don't know whether yours have that too, but that means that the representative needs to vote what the political party says you need to vote. You are not representing the people. You are just appointed by some body in your party and you just are being told, yes, we are going to vote yes. So why you sit there? That's a mockery of democracy of the highest level. Representative politics first, in my country at least, are wrong because they don't represent the people, they represent the, the party. That, of course, the people voted the party, but who else can you vote? I mean, there are three or five parties and they all promise something and they, they don't deliver. But next time you go to the election, the same ones are there, right? So democracy, the power of the people. Are you kidding? You just give it and then you are helpless for four years. And after four years, you are um, able to, to exercise that for what? Four minutes and you vote and then you are lost again. This is not good. That's not what it means, I think, to do politics. I don't see our politics going in this direction and, and I see actually decisions being made and that would be one reason, right, even if one is not in favor of Brexit, to understand some of the unease that went there, to, to just not to have the decision-making body too far from you, right? not to let that happen, because otherwise you are voting for politicians you don't even know. You don't even know what their names, and you don't even know anything. And then you are only voting because of what they say on TV. Oh, give me a break, what they say on TV. This is all through publicity and, and managers that study what they are supposed to be saying to make people trust them, right? While in Catalonia we are 7 million people, we are like Denmark, more or less, like in, in space. Well, it's not that I know 7 million people, but if somebody goes to prominence, it's easy for me to know somebody who knows pretty directly, because 7 million is a lot of people, but not that many. And definitely, if they speak about the river, I know the river. I've bathed myself in that river. If they speak about the mountain, I know the mountain range. Or if I don't know it, I can go next week or in a month and, and visit. So it makes politics real, right? Otherwise, it's it's a vacuum. It's a sense of power that it's it's not true, because you cannot have power over what you don't know. What do you um, see as the church's role in politics and in the future of politics? That here also, it's for me very important, and maybe that goes back, Paul, to also what you said about me reversing, right? How can the gospel uh, have nothing to do with politics, right? Because that would be uh, this idea of um, a neutral society, right, as being a society in which, for some people, 
religion and churches should not have a role in the public space, right? Well, of course, I'm not in in agreement with that, because one thing is to mix state and church. Ah, that's something else. That I'm all for separation, right? So state and church, they should be separated for the healthy state and for the healthy church, because that is not the church's role to have power and to even less to have it in a way that's not born out of these democratic uh, mechanisms, right? And to be involved as a church within that. No, I don't think that's the case. Now, state and church separate, yes, but the church needs to be present in the public space because I want the public space that some politicians or some philosophers, um, uh, political philosophers, call that a substantial public space. Substantial means it's a place where I want people to bring all they have. The best they have should be in the public space. They should not have the best they have only for the private because then our public, our togetherness will be thin, right? will be actually so thin that it will break and it will cause, right? It's a, no, I want it to be substantive because then we will have the opportunity in the public space, be it in the school or be it in the, uh, in the public forums that we might gather together in the, bring your values there. Where do I, where are, what are you going to do with your values? Bring your values and bring the reasons why you believe in those values. Now, be ready to hear others, of course. That's the, I don't want a place in the society for an authoritarian church. No, I, we don't need that. I'm not talking about that. Or for a fundamentalistic uh, religiosity that implies others have no rights. Of course, this needs to be excluded. So it are things that are self, self-excluded from the public space because they just don't give respect to others. So Sorry, but that doesn't belong. So it's not that I don't want to acknowledge limits. Yes, I do. But if you come into the public space and you speak because the gospel inspires you to do so, why do you have to hide that comes from the gospel? Others might say, okay, very uninteresting what you said. Okay, you find it uninteresting, but don't necessarily force me to say, well, this is because of some theory. It's like, no, this is because I prayed and that's what I felt. Do we have a space in the public space for that? Well, then otherwise it will be stagnant. It will die because all that's best and more alive in us will be banned for no reason. Because what needs to be banned is violence in the public space and authoritarianism, right? And and invading the other and forcing and all this needs to be watched. And we need to be um, helping each other to create a healthy public space. But, and maybe to mention that John Locke, when he talked about this letter of tolerance, right, that was in the 17th century, like the what's normally quoted as the beginning of this religious pluralism, he said, no religion has to be allowed to exert vi- violence against another one, right, or to exert violence to its own members. And the state needs to help to get the guarantee that that's not possible, right, that that and when that is um, known, then it needs to act, etc. But that's not the same. That's not the same. And Locke is very clear in his letter, not the same of saying the state knows that all religions are equal. That's not the same. The state doesn't know that because the state is not above religion, right? So the state doesn't say which religion is better than another. But the state also doesn't say all religions are equal because we might have a religion that says, I don't know, all black people something, right? Religions are all. So the state 
the neutrality of the state, it's not based on the state knowing that all religions are equal. It's based on the state knowing that the state doesn't know. So it cannot attribute more power or privileges to one religion or the other. Let the religious thing be talked in a more authentic way, which is, you are a believer, tell us about you if you want. You are a believer, okay, and let people figure out, right? But don't come as Papa state or Mama state saying all religion. First of all, do you know all religion? So how can you say that? It's an a priori that seems to be helpful and progressive and open-minded. It's not. my. It's another religion. But watch out. And if somebody is making something violent, just act, because that's your duty, right? But don't tell people whether all religions are equal or they are not equal. Just Respect any religion one of your citizens has and just give them opportunity to engage each other. Thank you so much for giving your time and sharing your wisdom with us. Um, yeah, it's been so so good to connect with you. Um, we're fascinated with, with you and your life and your life at the monastery there and your teaching. And perhaps one day... Um, I don't know if this will be possible either because of your vows or because of the context, but one day we would love to bring you back to Greenbelt um, if we are able. So let's keep it open. <laughs> See, we never know. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Catherine. And keep well. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Sister Teresa joining us from Montserrat on the mountain, from the monastery. What did you think? Just incredible. Incredible. I was so excited to speak to her and she did not let me down at all. We went straight in at the beginning of the conversation. And I know for you, having grown up in Catholic education and as a woman, the whole feminism, Catholicism thing is is quite a conundrum, isn't it? And she's strongly feminist and yet still... A, a Catholic as well. It was interesting what she was saying there. Yeah, I love that she's fighting it from the inside in 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 some ways. Like you know, there's still a belief that what, spiritually she she has a really strong faith and a really strong belief belief in the Roman Catholic Church, but she can be critical at the same time, which is really a, a good a good thing that I think we're missing. That you can you know that things aren't just black and white. Things aren't just good or bad. It there's you know. This grey areas, and um, I've watched I've watched so many videos of her standing in front of like rows of these nuns in their habits, talking about how the Catholic Church is structurally sexist and misogynist. I just think that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I love the fact that she was very stinging in her theology, saying, "Okay, yeah, you know, we've got this biblical theology that says we're all made in the image of God, and that we're all equal, and that we're all loved." But then the system that, were, that we're in, our institution tells you that if you're a woman, you can't be a priest. Yeah. And she just said that is completely nuts. And it, it sets up something that, that, that is so counterproductive. Yeah. And it makes no sense. Like you cannot stand up in front of people and represent um, the Catholic Church. And she's saying that makes no sense. I, it made me think back a little bit to Leroy Logan last week when he said, you know, if you can, his experience of going back to Jamaica made him see people performing roles that he could then aspire to. And, you know, as a girl growing up in the Catholic Church, you don't see that. How can you be it? Because you can't see it. 
So what kind of a strong sense of self must you have to, you know, have this calling, have this vocation and just sense that it's not right? Have this such strong belief in what you think that that isn't right, that you will speak out against it? Yeah, because so many people, I mean, me included, I would just walk away from an institution where if I if I felt that someone th thing was really odd at odds with what I believed and I had no way of sort of changing it or making a difference to it, I'd think, oh, well, never mind. They can do that thing. I'll leave and go and do something else over here. But she stays like um, like the grit in the oyster, sort of like the like the irritant that's there. And that must, that must, you know, you must be really strong to do that, I think. I think that you do, you have stayed, because I think that's what Greenbelt is in some ways. I mean, that is definitely, definitely a big part of, of Greenbelt's raison d'etre is like to, to not just diss the church, but to be a sort of a, a friendly irritant that says, really? Are you sure? <laughs> and hopefully as part of a whole sea of people who are doing the same that can gradually bring about change. I think you asked, Sister Teresa, have you seen development in this area around gender equality in the church? She was pretty honest. I think she sort of said sort of. There are some people in some roles, but in general, no. <laughs> Yeah, it it kind of, to me, it was reflective of like, maybe it's quite similar to the society that we live in. Like, yeah, things have got better, but at the top, there's still normally a man. And definitely in the Catholic Church at the top, there is a man and there can't be a woman, even though there is women now in more positions of power within the church. And probably making all the decisions. I love that when she said <laughs> there's um, that uh, Catalonian nun that's taken that position within the Vatican, um, I think secretary of something i can't remember the long title um but that is a position of power and normally behind every great man there is a great woman making a lot of the decisions <laughs> do you know one of the stories that teresa told that i found really fascinating she was talking about how um you know if an 18 year old or a 20 year old when they do come knocking on the door of the monastery that their particular monastery um, the, the women there would tell them to go away and live life and have some experience and maybe get a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend and learn what sexuality means to them and then come back if you want to when you're older. That shocked me. And I think it's because my experience of certain religious institutions is that they have this um, drive to sign people up young, get them young, get them believing in the same way that like a lot of um, big companies are like, get them drinking Coke young and they'll be drinking Coke for the rest of their life. It's that same mentality, which I find quite disturbing. And I love the fact that what she's saying is, no, learn about yourself and come back to us. This makes, this makes sense. And you need to come at it with experience, with knowledge, with an ability to critique it and with a, and with a real knowledge that this is the right thing you want to do and you're going to care about and you're going to do good no i really like that that was really refreshing 
to hear her say that and because like you're saying i was brought up in a tradition where you were very much sort of being funneled and encouraged in a particular direction from the very beginning from when you were young and you know even around relationships people would get in in my sort of church background would get married really young um and often if i'm honest those marriages would go wrong um because you know you're too young and i think there was a real lovely sense of gentleness and realism from from sister teresa and also it it connected for me with when she was talking about vocation and calling because if this is a calling it's not going to go away it's still going to be there in 5 10 15 years time We dug in a lot with her, didn't we, around the pandemic because she is a a qualified doctor and her main area of medical expertise is in public health. And she's done a lot of work across her life and her career, both before being a nun and during and since um, around yeah, public health. And she had a lot of interesting things to say. I was fascinated by how... um how fighting and understanding how big pharmaceutical companies work um, was, I guess, part of her vocation, passion, interest. You know, she was talking about in 2009 with the swine flu that she was one of the lone voices talking about, you know, some misinformation that was being spread or how things didn't quite tie up. Um, And she was proven right. So first of all, I thought she kind of knows what she's on about. I should stay that neither Catherine or I are doctors or scientists. Correct. (laughs) I think one thing that's really interesting about this pandemic is how we've all been very much encouraged to follow the science, watch the data. But the problem with that, I think, is that very few of us are scientists and very few of us have been taught how to interpret data. Um, We're being asked to just consume science and data without the chance to know how to interpret it as to what it actually means. And so listening to Sister Teresa, I I found it really helpful because here was someone who really knew what she was talking about, who was giving us some alternative perspectives. Uh, Whatever you think about the vaccine, you know, that's people's personal opinion and I don't really have anything to say either way on that but she said if the vaccine is the best why aren't all labs producing it no question which i think is 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 really interesting because it's saying if we have this thing that can solve this pandemic that is crushing people's lives businesses the economy why isn't every lab in the world producing it because we're all being told like this is a wartime thing we're all making sacrifices we're all being told not to see our families n- to leave our loved ones as they're dying alone in hospital to we're, we're, people are losing businesses and we've been told but this is this is an exceptional circumstance but it's not exceptional enough that businesses have to um that patents become freely available it doesn't hit that in the same way you know, wartime effort requires different sorts, different types of responses, but we're still responding through the system of a global capitalism, which means that certain people have the power, the money, the influence, uh, and they still get the chance to exert that over other people. Uh, and yet this is meant to be a, a global catastrophe, and it is. And like Sister Teresa said, if this is really the way that we're going to respond through a vaccine, like... Why isn't every single laboratory in the whole world got the recipe and making this stuff? 
And there, and I've heard Bill. I've heard some interviews with different people, including Bill Gates, where he's you know he's answered that question. He said, "Well, there's not, you know, you can't just make." vaccines in your house or your shed like it has to be a proper facility it has to be um set up in the right way and be temperature controlled and have all these different controls around it but that doesn't seem to be impossible you know for us to for us to do in that kind of amount of time share that knowledge then if that's what it takes i thought she was also quite interesting because she talked about um how uh, Bolivia in particular at the time they were um, prescribing a different medication which was a medication that isn't patentable, is cheaply available and has been used for years since then so many other countries are taking that route with these different medications you know we've just seen that Goa is has in India has used it um is giving it out to the people that live there and that cases have just dropped. Yeah, likewise in Delhi, where cases only a month ago were, you know, we were getting reports about obviously the Indian crisis and about how cases were, and deaths were spiralling out of control. And um, they've made this drug available, which uh, Sister Teresa uses the chemical word for it. It's also known as ivermectin. And the problem with that, like Catherine was just saying, if you Google for that or if you try and talk about it, there's definitely some sort of weird thing out there where the powers that be are, are trying to sort of suppress people talking about it knowing about that um, as an alternative as it as the situation has gone on and unfolded i've become what i would call sort of skeptical and quizzical about what's happening and the way that we're responding to it for all sorts of different reasons but what i've been a little bit shocked about is that in this pandemic you you're either compliant or you're a conspiracist. Uh, that's the way you're made to feel. You either do the right thing, follow all the rules, um, you know, be a good citizen and be very compliant because that's what you have to do in a, in a war effort. And if you don't, you're just branded some form of loony conspiracist. And I, I think there's a whole space in the middle of that for people who are sceptical. And it seems that we're not allowed to be sceptical about this. There should always be room for debate and conversation. I mean, I can see on the flip side, you know, this 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 pandemic is awful. And I've got I've got friends that work in the health service and they've told me about the way that people are dying. And it's terrible. It's something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. You know, the vaccines are reducing that. And if you start to have any conversations that question that, it could be harmful. So I understand I understand the need to want to suppress anything but something that is going to be um, helpful to getting people out of this pandemic and to get rid of this threat. But what I think we're seeing unequivocally is lots of countries are taking different methods and it's working. And I think that over the next few months, year, that that will come to light a lot more. I think that what Sister Teresa made me think is I do hope that when the time comes for the learning and the reflection around all this that we can, as a global community, just rethink things a little bit. I mean, I know that sounds very naive. It feels like we've not quite responded to this in, in a very helpful way. And I'm not blaming anyone because this was huge and unprecedented. What I'm saying is 
the notion of public health that Sister Teresa is so strong on requires a little bit more of a wider thoughtfulness and response than just a solution in a syringe, I think. There's more to being healthy as a community, as a global population, than just getting injections for stuff that make us ill. Letters you can write in to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering whether you're going to keep that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. She was talking about this piece of art that she saw somewhere in this gallery, which was um, a picture of the a painting of the crucifixion of Jesus, and but it had just the crucif you know, Jesus dying on the cross in the corner of this painting. And in front of this painting, life was going on as normal. Uh, and, she, and she said, you know, if that happened to Jesus, I, you know, that's Jesus. What do, why do I think anything different is going to happen to me when I speak out? Oh, man, I found that really moving. Um, you know, thinking about the crucifixion as being so central to my faith. And then this painting, which has it right out on the edge. And I think, what did she say? I wrote it down. She said, it reminded me that the world has another centre of interest. I wrote that down too. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is... Because that's the thing, the truth, the things that matter, whether you're a person of faith or not, in my case, the life of Jesus, it's still being pushed to the margins. We always like it when people uh, respond to the podcast to tell us what you're thinking. You can email us on stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. You can also let us know what you're thinking on social media. Our Twitter is at Greenbelt. Our Instagram is at Greenbelt Festival. And we're Greenbelt Festival on Facebook too. Yeah. And if you want to um, get notifications about the podcast coming out and get a bit more in-depth, um, some links and references and resources, we do a Friday email uh, that you can sign up to, greenbelt.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'd like to say a few thank yous to the people who help us make these podcasts. Thank you to Daisy Wedgarrett on the staff team who helps us produce this podcast. And thank you to Paul Truman again on the staff team who helps us frame the episode. And to Josh and Jake on our Recorded Talks uh, volunteer team. They help us edit this whole thing and put it together, make it sound half decent. So thank you very much to them. And one big thank you to Lee Baines from Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for the use of his track, which we use in our titles. Um, it's called I Can Change. And we are forever grateful to Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for everything they do. And, uh, you know, we didn't know this at the time, but of course, this podcast episode is coming out uh, after we now know that we have a Catholic prime minister. So, you know, that, there's something in the water. There's something in the Boris. air, isn't there? Yeah. Is he? Yeah. Boris and Carrie got married at Westminster Cathedral. Um, I had a Catholic wedding last weekend. I'm really impressed, Catherine, that you don't know that. That shows me... <laughs> That shows me you're doing a wonderful job of keeping your mind pure and away from mainstream media. I love it. Yeah, I have no attention to that whatsoever. What I loved is the fact that she was talking about how she was being disinvited to medical conferences because um, 
big pharmaceutical companies that were supporting these com- conferences financially were saying, if you bring in her, we're not giving you any money. <laughs> not that, because she's, there's none in this monastery in Catalonia. And it's just, <laughs> I would love that. I would love to see them having like these big, big farmer exec uh, co- conversations around this table when they're like, what's Sister Teresa up to? <laughs> <laughs> 